0: You know, because Redeemer is such a young congregation, I've had myriad opportunities to officiate lots and lots of weddings. And I've noticed a new trend lately uh, in weddings that I officiate, and this new trend is called the first look. And the first look, by my observation, has been this uh, highly staged moment pre-ceremony, where the photographer attempts to capture the moment, the faces, the expression of the bride and the groom as they see each other in their wedding attire for the very first time. Now, I'll say this, even though the moment tends to be very staged, the looks on the faces are not It's difficult to hide the emotion and the captivation of that first look. When Christ appeared on Easter Sunday, it was just so. The first look, the first time that human eyes saw the glory of the resurrected Savior. These are the words that Scripture uses to capture that moment. The emotion, the captivation of it. Rumbling, shaking, quaking, lightning, burning. And that was just the first look. The first look. What words should we employ to describe a lifetime of continual looking? that began in that moment. Should we not anticipate that more and more and more and more looking at our resurrected Savior would produce at the very least, at the very least, a continued rumble, shaking, quaking, lightning, burning. And then beyond those words, to describe the experiences we have through a lifetime of looking at Christ. Well, the early church thought so. Unlike the modern church that views Easter Sunday as an end in itself, as evidenced by the fact that on Easter Sunday, attendance soars, and the Sunday after Easter, attendance plummets, for the early church, Easter Sunday was just the beginning, just the first look, and it began a season that was known as tide, and it was a season of celebration, and Sundays were marked in relation to that first look moment, the first Sunday after the first look, first Sunday after Easter, the second Sunday after the first look. Of Easter morning, the third Sunday after the first look of Easter moment. Morning. Each week was a building of excitement because they anticipated that the look that began on Easter Sunday would only crescendo. I pray that you have that anticipation for yourself. Because Christ was risen on Sunday. The early church began to call Sunday the eighth day. They needed a day beyond the seven days of creation to express how the work of recreation of new life in Christ was greater than the work done at the time of the creation of the world. They needed a day beyond the seven days of creation to express that the rest of That follows the completion of redemption. The rest that we have in Christ is far greater than the rest of the seventh day. They needed a day beyond the seven days of creation to express their great hope. The hope they had that just as Jesus appeared to his disciples, stood in their midst, During his post-resurrection appearances on a Sunday. And said to them, peace be with you, that so too. In their worship, Christ would stand in their midst. And speak his blessing. Peace be with you on them. And so they were known as eighth day disciples. Augustine writes, that Christ suffered voluntarily and so could choose his own time for suffering and for resurrection. He brought it about that his body rested from all its works on the Sabbath in the tomb and that his resurrection was on the third day, which we call the Lord's Day, the day after the Sabbath and therefore the eighth day. John Calvin writes, the eighth day might seem... To be fixed upon by the Lord to prefigure the beginning of life. Baptismal fonts in the very early church were octagonal. Eight sided to highlight the importance of the eighth day. Now this is not, believe it or not, an eighth day sermon. Though it could be. So much in scripture Prefigures it, but I hope that we will strive to be eighth-day Easter tide disciples of Christ. I pray that the first look of Easter Sunday—that it's just a beginning, the beginning of a crescendo—that takes place in all of our lives as we look and look and look and keep looking and keep looking at Christ. We gotta know the resurrection is just the beginning of seeing Jesus. Looking at him. And seeing Jesus changes everything. So, with that very long, inordinately long introduction, I ask you now if you'll take out your Bibles and turn to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. As we return this week to Revelation chapter 5, when you found your place. I'm going to ask you to stand that we might hear together the word of the living God. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. The apostle John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, The scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. "...from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, "...worthy is the Lamb who was slain." Father in heaven bless now the reading of your word this beautiful word it's god given vision bless it to us we pray as you promise to do that we might be eighth day easter tide disciples who keep our eyes fixed on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So in order to be eight-day disciples and Easter-tide disciples, we have many, many needs. I just want to address two of those needs this morning. And the first need that you and I have is to prostrate ourselves before the paradoxes of God. Prostrate ourselves before the paradoxes of God. Last week, when we looked at this vision of the Apostle John that he had of the risen Christ, I had time to only tell half of the story. But make no mistake... Though the half half I told was not all, it was enough in and of itself. It was hope-giving, grief-stopping, tear-drying, courage-building to look and behold Christ as the Lion of Judah, to see him as the victor, the conqueror, the prevailer, the overcomer. But John sees the risen Jesus, not just as a lion, but also as a lamb. Look in the middle of verse 6. John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so Jesus is both a lion and a lamb. When can a lamb ever dwell safely in the presence of a lion? And when do the characteristics and the qualities that each possess not contradict and then devour each other? And then when can a lion ever become a lamb? Well, only in God's economy. Only in God's paradox. Is Jesus a lion or a lamb? Yes, (laughs) It's moments like these that I am so thankful for the gift of faith that God gives to us. It takes faith to believe in and live in and live with paradox, with seemingly absurd contradictions. But a God of no paradox is a God too small too finite, too limited, too unimaginative, too uninventive, a God not really worshiping at all if he can be so easily figured out by human reason such as you and I possess. How do we explain the paradoxes? Well, often we can't, but faith enables us to know that They're real and to love God for them and to embrace the paradoxes for the opportunities they afford us to think deeply about the things of God. And so we must prostrate ourselves before the paradoxes so that we can with humility and awe ponder and probe God's truth. How can it be? One of the greatest paradoxes of all being that the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and all that we confessed about him in the creed this morning, that one such as he would come into this world and take on flesh and die for people like you and me. Paradox, and you and I ought to prostrate ourselves before it more often and ponder it more deeply. Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Here in Revelation, Jesus appears to be a lion, he appears to be a lamb, <laughs> but in reality, He's neither since in heaven we know that he retains the physical body with which he humiliated himself when he took it on, a body now glorified by God. We have some prostrating to do, some pondering to do. We don't like paradox in our lives. They're very difficult for us to navigate, are they not? They're often a source of embarrassment to you and to me out in the world. Because are not the paradoxes of Christ the very place where the world takes its knife of unbelief and ridicule and plunges it and twists it? God is a loving God. How can a loving God kill his own son? How can God be merciful and gracious and still send people to hell? How can a passionate God, compassionate God, allow suffering and evil in the world? See, the answers to these questions are not found lying on the surface. Like the seeds that fell along the path in Jesus' parable. We know what happened to those seeds, don't we? They didn't go deep. They didn't find root. And so the birds there came and devoured them. Eighth day disciples need to think deeply about the things of God. I want to read several verses to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory goes on to say, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual eighth day easter tide disciples prostrate themselves before paradox before the secret hidden wisdom of god before the spirit revealed truth of god the spirit revealed thoughts of god eighth day easter tide disciples are never ever satisfied With the first look. No, we keep looking more often and more deeply at Christ. So much glory, so much glory is to be found in our paradoxical Savior that we long to wring out every bit of the glory. See, it's easier for us to have Jesus either as the lion. Or the Lamb. Each one contains characteristics for which we could love and worship Christ forever. But Eighth Day Disciples want the most complete view of Christ that we can possibly have after that first resurrection look. Charles Spurgeon writes Never divide what God has joined together. Do not speak of our Lord Jesus Christ as some do with an irreverent familiarity, but at the same time, do not think of him as of some great Lord who, for whom we must feel a slavish dread. Jesus is your next of kin, a brother born for adversity, and yet he's your God and Lord. Let love and all. Keep the watches of your soul, love and all for what seem like paradoxes to us, but which in fact are not paradoxes for God, whose ways are above our ways, whose thoughts are above our thoughts. But they, disciples, seek to attain as much of those ways and as many of those thoughts as we can possibly understand so first need, prostrate ourselves before the paradoxes of God. second need of eighth-day tide disciples is that we have a need to find release in worship. All of chapter 5. And you heard the dilemma. The dilemma is that Almighty God is seated on his throne and he holds in his hand a scroll, a scroll that's so full of the goodwill and the good purpose and the good plan of a good God that it covers the front and the back of the scroll. The dilemma is that there's no one, no one worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God much Less to open the scroll. And so John weeps because John wants to know everything that can be known about God, as does all of heaven. John wants to know everything. He wants everything that can be revealed to be revealed, as does all of heaven. And for John and for all of heaven, it is for them an indescribable loss that the scroll cannot be opened. And so John weeps. Now, look in verse 7. This is a moment of great drama. The lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. With apologies to C.S. Lewis, it's not the lion who is on the move. It's the lamb. And I must say, that the word translated went in this verse really can't capture the essence of the word. Went certainly expresses movement, but when John uses this word in any of his writings, gospel, letter, here in Revelation, he uses it as a word of divine mission. And that divine mission is to deliver the world, the universe, from destruction and alienation from God. So listen to how John uses this word as he records the words that Jesus spoke. John 8, Jesus says, For I know where I came from. Same word. I know where I came from and where I'm going. Missional moment. Jesus said, for I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Missional moment. John 5, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name. That's missional movement. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Missional movement. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Missional movement. Jesus said, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Missional movement. And so when the lamb begins to make his way to The throne, it's a very missional movement and a very missional moment in heaven. And all eyes are on the lamb. And again, what a paradox. We would think, we would expect that it would only be the powerful lion who had the strength and the courage to approach the throne of the living God. But it's not. It's a lamb. And it's not just any lamb. Is it? But a lamb looking as if it had been slain. What strength could a slain lamb possess? Ah. But the strength comes from the wounds. The lamb did not shrink from being wounded and slain, it was his way to accomplish this divine mission by his wounds and not by a sword he would destroy death in his strength he was like a sheep who before his shearers is silent in his strength he opened not his mouth in his strength he bore our sins and carried our sorrows. In his strength, he allowed himself to be ridiculed and rejected, to be esteemed, smitten, stricken of God and afflicted. In his strength, he allowed himself to be wounded and crushed for our iniquities. In his strength, he offered his back to be whipped And his beard to be plucked out. And his face to be spit upon. And his head to be crowned with thorns. And his body to be crucified. Because the lamb knew what must be done to set captives free from sin and death. But look, look. Now the mission is accomplished. And so the lamb moves toward the throne. And we watch and we behold the ease with which he moves. The ease with which the lamb did what no one else in heaven was worthy to do. Ease. Because the lamb knows well the love that the father has for him. The lamb can see the look of love in his father's eyes as he approaches the throne the love for his perfect obedience, the love that says, come near. And so the lamb, what a beautiful moment, stepped forward fearlessly. And when the lamb fearlessly took the scroll from the hand of God, the elders fell down and worshiped. They worshiped because the lamb did it. And look, the lamb hasn't even opened the scroll yet. He's only just taken it from the hand of the father. But when they looked on at this divine missional moment, they worshipped. They had to worship. They needed the release that worship offered to how overwhelmed they were by the sight. And so they sang in verse 9, You were slain, and by your blood you ran some people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then myriads of myriads, thousands and thousands of angels who had also seen this very missional moment, this very missional movement said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then John heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might. Forever and ever. And then I suppose. The elders who must have gotten up on their feet. After their first worship. When they heard all of creation. When they saw all of creation. And all of heaven. Worshiping over this missional moment. Over this missional movement. They fell down again. And they worshiped again. Because we need the release of worship. Look. God never intended that all the joy and all the wonder and all the awe and all the thanks and all the praise that wells up within us from the first look and the second look and the third look and the hundred millionth look, we're not designed to contain it. And so God created us to be worshipers. And that's what eighth day Tide disciples do. They worship. It's what you and I must do. You know why? Because he is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Do you believe that? And so the celebration goes on. Does it not? The rumbling, the shaking, the quaking, the lightning, the burning of the first look only crescendos in us as we keep looking at Christ. Crescendo to what in you and me? That's an answer known only by the Spirit of God. So keep looking because seeing Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now simply the prayer recorded in your word that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to see you. Not just one look, but many, many looks. As we look, reveal yourself to us in your glory, we pray.